go. Good morning, everybody. Hey, this morning, uh, I've got a sermon for you. Not real sure how it's going to go, to be honest with you. It's one of those passages today where some will hear this message and they will love it because it's a very biblically-based message, where some will hear this and they will think, well, that's kind of judgmental, even though it's a very biblically-based message. And then probably, probably about 80% of us, I think, will say, I don't really know how this applies to my life. Why are we talking about this? Today, we are talking about church discipline. I know, it's the topic everybody gets excited about, right? But here's the thing. We've been going through this series for 10 months now called A Year-ish with Jesus, where we've been looking at the book of Matthew, and we've just been progressively working our way through, just hearing Jesus' teachings and watching his life and learning what does it mean to follow him and to be a part of his kingdom. And a lot of that stuff is really heartfelt and impactful and very applicable, but some of the stuff that Jesus says, frankly, just is hard to swallow, and some of it just as hard to apply to our cultural framework today. And I knew this was going to happen eventually. And I'll be honest, it's tempting just to skip this passage because next week's passage is so much easier to preach. And frankly, it's way more fun to preach. But Jesus said it, so it matters. So I'm not doing anybody any favors by glossing over it. So today we're going to talk about church discipline, continuing this series in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen behind where we put all of our passages, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes uh, along with our passage pulled open, ready for you to make notes on, maybe jot a few things down, however you get the most out of our time together. So church discipline, that's what we're talking about. Maybe the number one question we have to start with is, what is church discipline? Church discipline is the process and the practice by which the church community addresses unrepentant sin and holds one another accountable. That's kind of a working definition there. It's the practice and the process by which the church community addresses unrepentant sin and holds one another accountable. There's kind of a lot in that definition. So let's, let's unpack it a little bit and understand what this thing is. We'll start with that idea of unrepentant sin. What do we mean by that? Well, sin in its basic context, and maybe this is remedial, we all might know this, but it's worth saying, sin is anything that transgresses or rebels against God's calling and his intentions for our life. Disobedience, breaking commands, things like that. You think of the Ten Commandments. Those are pretty easy to identify. We all probably know at least some of them. You shall have no other gods before me. Shall not worship idols. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't steal. Don't murder. If we were to break any of those commands, we would be working against God's call and expectation on our life. That would be sin. And we all have sin in our lives. Maybe it's not those commands. Maybe it's something else. Whether you're a believer, you're an unbeliever, we've all sinned. That's why Jesus is so important for everybody. He's the one person who did not sin. He's the one person that did not transgress God's commands and his will and his calling upon the human life. And that's why he and he alone is the only person that could ever serve as a sacrifice on our behalf. He was truly innocent. And I like to talk about it sometimes like a sponge. You know, you got like a puddle of something on your kitchen counter. You take a dry sponge and you put it in the middle of the puddle and it just soaks all that stuff up into itself and your counter is clean. 
And that's kind of what Jesus did as he hung there on the cross. He was the one person who was void of any sin, of any wrongdoing, of any guilt. And when he laid down his life, he sort of just sucked up all of our mess into himself. And our sin became his problem to bear and to pay for. And just like that kitchen counter, we were left clean and spotless. That's why Jesus matters so much. When the grace of God washes over our lives, judgment becomes something we no longer have to fear. Condemnation is not something we have to fear. We are innocent before God, and we are free to just live for Him. That's why this is called good news. It's this good news that we are at peace with God once again. That's the beauty of the gospel. And here's the thing with this sin stuff, though. Just because we are covered by the grace of God, that doesn't make sin somehow less of a problem or less of a poison. You might think about it like this. If you were to drink antifreeze, that would be poison. That's going to kill you. But if somebody rushes you to the hospital and they pump your stomach and they get it out and you're saved, that person has saved your life, you're now free and clear. You're not going to stand up and go, praise God, somebody saved me, pass me another glass of antifreeze. That doesn't make that less poisonous. It doesn't make it less toxic. Why would we ever welcome that back into our body? And that's to be our relationship to sin as Christians and believers. We've been saved. We are covered with the grace of God. We should not welcome this poison back into our lives. Now, the fact of the matter is, we're going to struggle. We have a fallen nature. We have fleshly desires. We're going to have good days. We're going to have bad days. We're going to have ups. We're going to have downs. And the grace of God covers us the entire way because the calling is to move our lives up and to the right, to walk with Jesus, growing to look more like him every day through the rest of our lives. That's the calling. But sometimes we don't want to move up and to the right. Sometimes we don't want to resist sin because sin is good. Like, it feels good. It's fun. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do this stuff, right? Like, nobody, if it hurt and felt like you were getting stabbed, would say, let's do that again. It feels good. And so there's a temptation to say, you know what? I'm not going to get rid of this stuff in my life. I'm going to welcome it. I'm going to indulge it. I'm going to give it a home right here in my heart. And that's what we mean by unrepentant sin. It's when a believer or a Christian welcomes that poison back into their lives with open arms and gives it a home and says, I don't want to give this up, and I don't think I will. When that happens, it is the calling and the responsibility of the church community to surround this person out of care and concern and to hold them accountable. That is church discipline at its basics. As a basis, I should say. As you can see, it, it plays an important role in the life of believers. But that kind of raises a lot of questions. You know, we know what it is, but why is it necessary? That's the second question we can ask. Because, it, like we said, everybody has sin in their lives. We all wrestle with it. So why don't we all just mind our own business, right? Why don't we just focus on ourselves? You do your thing. I'll do mine. You take care of your problems. I'll take care of my problems. Because it's my life, my faith, my behavior, my decisions. And that line of thinking makes perfect sense in terms of our cultural values, right? We're a culture that champions individual autonomy and privacy. But that line of thinking makes zero sense in line of everything that we've learned from Matthew chapter 18 over the last three weeks. If you missed it, I'll just summarize real quick. Matthew chapter 18 is one of the largest bodies of teaching that we have straight from Jesus. And what ties it all together is this theme of relationships, the kind of relationship that you and I are to have in this thing we call the kingdom of God as believers. 
And at the heart of it, we're just supposed to care about one another. And this line of thinking, it runs through all of these teachings. If we were to look at verses 6 through 9, Jesus says sin is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal, you'd be better off cutting off your right hand if it causes you to sin or plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin because it's better to enter heaven maimed than enter hell with your body intact. Now, he's being hyperbolic there. We shouldn't go cut off limbs and stuff. But the point is this. Sin is not a small thing. We should take great care to jettison it from our lives. And that's not only for our benefit, but also for the benefit of one another because people are very influential creatures. We imitate the people we spend time around. And it's not just a childish thing. People do this. This is why there are best-selling books and podcasts that go on for hours that talk about this basic principle of you will become the, pers- the 10 people you spend the most time around. Because even as adults, independent adults, free-thinking adults, we are influential creatures. And he says it is better, Jesus says, it's better to have a millstone, this large rock tied around your neck and to jump into the ocean and to drown to death than to lead your brother or sister into sin. It's a serious thing. We ought to care enough about one another to even censor our own behavior because we're all running this race together and we all want to cross the finish line and hear those words, well done, that good and faithful servant. He continues. If we look at verse 10, this theme of caring about one another, he says, do not despise one of these little ones, one of these believers of mine. And the context is in sin. Don't judge people because they sin. Don't condemn them. Don't despise them because they stumble or fall short. And the rationale is that parable about the shepherd and the sheep that we heard last week. God cares about his people immensely. Like a shepherd who will leave 99 and go chase down the one who's wandered, every single one of his people are valuable to him. And if the person sitting next to you this morning is that valuable to God that he would send Jesus to die in their stead, well, then maybe we ought to care about them too because they are an immensely valuable and significant person. It's this theme of caring about one another, and it continues in our passage this morning. If you want to look at verse 15, that's where we're going to start reading. It says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So there's a special scene kind of being painted here. This isn't just two strangers. These are two people probably who know each other because you're not going to have a complete and total stranger sit down with you for a face-to-face and say, let's talk about the conduct of your life. That's just not going to happen. So two people who presumably know each other who sit down for a private conversation in which one says, hey, there's something in your life I'm concerned about. And the phrasing there, it says, you know, point out your brother's sin, and then if they, listen, you've won them over. That kind of sounds argumentative. It sounds competitive. That's not kind of the the thrust of this passage or the emotion behind it. There's this resource that a lot of Bible translators use when they go over to different cultures. Um, It's an incredibly helpful resource, and it does a great job pointing out sort of the nuance and the intention of the phrasing. It makes this suggestion. Explain to your brother how they have sinned. This isn't an argument, this isn't a debate, this isn't you're wrong and I'm right and here's why. This isn't supposed to be some sort of competitive thing. This is a thing that's done out of concern. This is a conversation that is had simply because I care about you and I want you to know this and and I want you to succeed. And we all need somebody in our lives that cares enough about us to sit down and have that kind of a difficult conversation with us. I, it was probably about a year, year and a half ago or so, I wrote a sermon, um, and it was one of the illustrations, I used the story of Helen Keller. If you're not familiar, Helen Keller, she was born blind, deaf, mute, had a lot of obstacles to overcome, but she did, and became this very inspirational figure. So I wrote down her story, and, and I thought, great, you know, it's a good sermon, good story, 
moved on with the rest of my week. Well, every week, um, I email a copy of the manuscript to a woman from our congregation, Carol Monocle, who herself is deaf and has done a lot of work with the deaf community and advocacy and so on. And she sent me a very gracious email, uh, like the next day, I think, explaining how this, this story I thought was fine and well, actually, some of the things that I said and the phrases I used were actually very offensive to the deaf community. And again, it was very gracious. And so she explained to me, hey, here's how, what you don't want to say. And here's how you could phrase this differently. Or here's terminology that's more appropriate to use. And I was incredibly thankful for that email. Because I needed that. I needed somebody that cared enough to say, hey, I know you. And I know you don't want to come across this way. So here's some things that you could fix and work on. I needed that. And we all need people that will take the time to point things out to us because sometimes we don't know there's sin in our lives. Sometimes we're blind to it. We all have blind spots, you know? Sometimes we're just not aware of stuff in our lives or we're not aware that maybe it doesn't line up with Scripture. We need people that care enough to say, I love you and I'm concerned. Hey, here's something that maybe to work on. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes we know exactly what we're doing. And we know it's not appropriate for those who bear the name of Jesus. And yet we continue in it anyway. Because like we said, sin feels good. It has that initial, immediate reward. Now it's got a heck of a drop off. But it feels good in the moment. And we need people who care enough to sit down with us and have that kind of a hard conversation too. This guy, a pastor named Tim, I forget his last name. I forgot all the last names this morning when I was practicing this. But Tim... He's a pastor in Tennessee. He planted a church there. He was there for 35 years. He tells a story about a time uh, he, well, there was a man in his congregation who was having an affair. And this man, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. There was no confusion on the matter. It just felt good. So he, uh, Tim and the elders, to their credit, they approached this man and they said, hey, this is not right. This is not fitting for somebody who bears the name of Jesus, who represents his church. You got to turn around. You got to leave this behind you and repent. Because there's damage that's going to be done because of this initial act. But if you continue in this, that damage is just going to spread further and further and further. And people are going to be destroyed. you got to knock this off. They cared enough about this guy to sit down and have that hard conversation. Instead of just sort of closing their eyes and letting it go on and destroy him and his family. And the family of the person he's cheating with. and their family. Like, that, that is a huge, huge impact. And sometimes we need people who care enough to sit down and say, look, something is not right. There's something more that God has in store for you than this. We need people that care about one another. Because you want to finish that. You want to cross that finish line, right? You want to reap the reward of your faith. And you probably don't want to be there alone. You probably want your friends and your family to be right beside you, experiencing the joy of the Lord as you stand face to face with Him. But this race isn't easy. If it was, the Bible would be filled with all these upbeat expressions like, you know, you're doing great, way to go, or pictures of cats hanging from tree branches saying, hang in there, you got this, right? But that's not in the Bible. And so there's a lot of conversations about throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for you. There's conversations about ignore, or, or overlooking and, and pushing past persecutions, looking ahead and spurring ourselves on towards what lies ahead instead of the struggles that we deal with today. There's a lot of talk about endurance and perseverance because this race is hard and we need each other. We need people who care about one another to run this race well and finish strong. And that's why church discipline is necessary. 
at the end of the day, this is not a way of controlling people or getting nosy and meddling in people's lives. This is a way of caring about people enough to say, God is calling you to something more. So that's why it's necessary. How does it work? Because it seems like this sort of thing should have a process in place to avoid any sort of like overstepping and so on. And it does. That's actually what our passage is, is about lays out the process for church discipline. We saw in chapter 18, verse 15, it starts with just a one-on-one conversation. People that know each other, that care about one another, that private conversation. And that's always the first step, by the way. At any point, we find ourselves talking to a third party about somebody else's actions or complaining to a third party about somebody else's actions. We need to understand that we are now the ones in sin because it's very clear what Jesus calls us to. Is it awkward? A little but is it loving? Absolutely. Go talk to your brother or sister. And hopefully that's the end of the conversation. We sit down, we have this loving conversation, our, our friend, our family member, brother, sister in Christ, they say, thank you, I wasn't aware. Thank you for caring enough about me to have this conversation. There's a change in their lives. Praise God, we can move on. And when that happens, it's, it's my, one of my favorite passages, Proverbs 27, 17, as, one man, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And when we can have those kinds of conversations, we are elevating one another. We are sharpening and honing one another. We are maturing together. We are helping one another run this race faithfully and grow in the Lord. It's a beautiful thing when it works out like that. But that's not always how it goes. Sometimes that initial conversation happens and the individual in unrepentant sin, they say, well, I I think you're misunderstanding. I don't think you understand the context or the situation. Or they just flat out say, no, I'm not going to change and they dig in their heels. When that unfortunately takes place, Jesus is pretty clear. Things have to progress a little bit. Look at verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if the individual one-on-one conversation isn't effective, well, now we get a small group of people together, two or three, to come and speak to the individual. And there's a couple reasons for this. The first is that a group of people is a lot more difficult to ignore or to wave away than a single individual. If a single individual comes to me and they say, Jordan, there's something in your life that I see, it's troubling, you got to stop kicking puppies, man. It's wrong. It might be easy for me to just wave them away. You know, they don't understand. I just get a little worked up sometimes. It's not a big deal. Everybody's punted a puppy once in their life, right? You could just wave that away. But if a group of people come to me, two or three people that know me and care about me, and all of them testify the same thing, they say, Jordan, look, the way you kick puppies, it's just wrong for so many reasons. You got to stop. That becomes more difficult to just brush aside. Because now there's a group of people making this case. They're all saying the same thing. That becomes a little more credible. Maybe I should listen up. But there's even more happening here. It's a little more formal. In the Old Testament, anytime an accusation was brought before the the elders or, or the judge, it had to have at least three witnesses accredited to it in order for it to be legitimate. If you didn't have multiple witnesses testifying to it, it wasn't even entertained. And so in bringing a group of people before an individual, things are becoming a little more formal in case things have to progress to the final stage, which Jesus talks about in verse 17. He says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
So if this unrepentant brother or sister, if they're just digging their heels in and even a, a group of friends and people that come to them and say, I care about you, there's something in your life, you gotta knock this off. If even then they resist, then it goes to the church. And I will admit, that phrase, bring it before the church, it's a little open-ended as to what that means exactly. Does that mean bring it before the entire church congregation? Which might be easy in some instances, but some churches are 1,000, 20,000 people. Are we really going to parade somebody out in front of 20,000 people and say, okay, explain yourself? Or is it enough to say, okay, come before the representatives of the church, the, the body of elders? This has been interpreted differently throughout history. It's been implemented differently in different traditions. Here's what everything has in common, though. This final phase is public, it is formal, and it is final. It's public, it's formal, it's final. And it's the situation in which this individual has to come and explain themselves before either the church, representatives of the church, in a formal capacity, and they are called to repent and change. And this is the part where sometimes we hear it and we go, yeah, yeah, this sounds really judgmental. This sounds really controlling and domineering, like the church just wants to have its fingers in people's lives and tell them what to do, but that's not really it at all. I don't know if you've ever had any experience with an intervention. It's where a group of people sit down with an individual who is struggling with something. It's usually an addiction of some kind. And they call them to change. And they're not intervening in somebody's life because they want to meddle or because they want to control or because they're judgmental. They're intervening because this person they care about is killing themselves. And it breaks their hearts and it is out of a deep care and concern that they sit down and say, will you please change? Will you please remove this from your life? Because it's killing you, it's breaking our hearts, and something has got to go. And I think that is a great contemporary example of what church discipline is meant to be. It's not a group of people standing over, presiding over somebody's life, saying you need to conform or you're out. It's a group of people coming before a brother or sister and saying, we care about you. And the way that Matthew 18 has said, we are to care about one another. We care enough about you that we will not let you ruin your faith and hurt us in the process. Will you please change? And if even then a person digs in their heels and says, no, I will not, then there's an extreme choice that has been made. It is a choice to hold on to the poison and the corruption of sin rather than bow the knee to Jesus who saves and gives life. It is the choice to continue drinking the antifreeze. The choice to continue holding on to something that outside of the grace of God would condemn us to hell. That is an extreme choice. And it is followed up by an extreme reaction. You obviously do not have the same faith that we do. And you obviously do not serve the same Lord and Master that we do. And so we have to ask you to leave this fellowship. It's called excommunication. You may have heard the term before. And it is an extreme measure levied in reaction to an extreme choice. But even then, the door isn't fully shut. We read throughout the, the New Testament, there are examples of this church discipline process being enacted. One of them is in the church of Corinth. A man who is caught in a, a perverse sort of affair, will not repent, is kicked out, he's excommunicated. Then we get to 2 Corinthians. We have all these indications that he is brokenhearted, that he has repented, that he has changed. And Paul instructs that church, he says, welcome him back in. 
He suffered enough. Restore him to your fellowship. And that's sort of the goal of church discipline. Well, not sort of. That is the goal of church discipline. It's not to punish. It's not to control. It's not to meddle. It's to restore people. It's to bring us into a greater alignment with the calling of God on our lives and the instructions in the ministry of Jesus. So that's how this whole process works, how it unfolds, the guidelines by which it it moves, and the heart that's behind it. So maybe one final question. When should church discipline be enacted? When do we practice this? Because we've said a couple of things here. We've said everybody has sin in their lives, right, which is true. And we've said church discipline is the process by which we hold people accountable for their sin. So if you do the math real quick, doesn't that mean that church discipline could be applied to anybody at any time? And wouldn't that make for just an incredibly paranoid group of people? Yes, yes it would. It would be nuts around here if every single sin for every single person had to become a public affair and there had to be all these one-on-one meetings and they would just make for this really paranoid, like chaotic, unhealthy mess. And that's not what God wants for his church either. And so throughout the centuries, different churches, traditions, histories, they've talked about what, what are some guidelines for when to practice this. And this is by no means binding, but, but generally there's three criteria that the church uses today for determining, is this something that needs to be formally introduced into the church discipline pipeline, or is this something else? Is a sin outward? Is it consequential? And is it unrepentant? Is it outward? Is it consequential? Is it unrepentant? Let's talk about what that means. Is a sin outward? I can't see into people's hearts I can see your Facebook feeds, so I got a pretty good idea what's going on most of the time, but I can't see your heart, and I don't know your motivations. That's impossible for me to know and to accurately discern. If you can know people's intentions and motivations, then you and God have got something special in common that nobody else does. But the reality is we can't see people's hearts. And so when it comes to what we'll call inward sins, things like pride, envy, jealousy, These things that afflict us inwardly, but we can't really see outwardly, these are not the kind of things that we need to have sit-down conversations for and hold each other accountable. Now, if we're really close with somebody, you know, if I'm really close with somebody and I can see some telltale signs in their behavior, can I spend a lot of time with them? Maybe we might have a conversation, but i got to have a real special relationship with them. Most of the time, though, inward sin, that's not the kind of thing that we're going to enact church discipline upon. Outward sin is a little different. These are things that are very clearly discernible. Adultery, that's pretty easy to spot. Uh, Drunkenness, that's pretty clear. Wrath, anger, explosive anger, that's pretty easy to see too. These are outward things, things that we can very clearly point to and say, look, this is out of line with what Jesus, excuse me, Jesus calls us to. That's what we mean by outward sin. It's something consequential. Now, all sin destroys Big sin, little sin, inward sin, outward sin. That's the only thing sin is good for. It kills and destroys everything it touches. But that doesn't mean that every sinful action carries the same level of consequence. Sometimes the impact is a lot bigger. For instance, if I'm on my phone, I'm scrolling through Instagram, and some attractive woman comes across my screen and I lust, that is a sin. I need to guard my eyes, need to guard my heart, my mind. That's not good. But if I go to a strip club, And then some attractive woman's on stage and I lust. That's a little different, isn't it? The consequence of that action is going to be a little bigger. That's going to ruin my reputation. 
That's going to hurt the reputation of Christianity, even if I wasn't a minister, just because of the hypocrisy of it all. That's going to hurt my wife way more than the former thing. There's going to be a bigger impact. The consequences are going to be a little more severe. That's what we mean by, is it consequential? And then finally, is it unrepentant? Like we said, we've all got sin in our lives. We got good days, we got bad days, we got ups, we got downs. We're on a journey. We're wrestling against the flesh, trying to indulge the Spirit of God. And there are going to be highs and lows. And praise God for His grace that covers us in this journey, that strengthens us when we are weak. Without Him, we would all be lost. But there's a difference between trying to follow Jesus and just failing sometimes versus indulging and harboring sin in my life and giving it a home. That is unrepentant sin. So when something is unrepentant, when it is outward, when it is consequential, that's when maybe the question needs to be asked. Is this something where church discipline needs to be initiated? It's a lot of questions, formal process, I know. Let's, let's wrap up together uh, with a story that kind of ties all this together that says, here's what church discipline looks like in real time, and here's what it can accomplish when it's practiced with the right spirit. There's a, a minister, his name is Jim, no, I totally forgot his name. I'm going to have to look it up for second service. Told you today's not my day for names. There's a minister. He has an evangelical church in Dubai, of all places. And uh, a man in his congregation is named Harry. That name I do remember. And Harry, he's a Christian man. Uh, he, started, he moved in with his girlfriend. They had an apartment. And obviously there are implications with that. And Harry had a friend, a friend that he went to church with. And his friend came to Harry and said, man, this is not right. This is not what God calls us to. You know his calling on sexual ethic and how we're to live and avoid the appearance of evil and so on. You, you can't keep living with her. And Harry said, no, it's fine. It's not a big deal. So this friend, he got a few other Harry's friends from church, and they came and they sat down. They said, Harry, we care about you, man, and this is not right. Here's what Scripture says very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a whole list of behaviors and, and people and lifestyles that will not inherit the God. The greedy, the swindler, the idolater, the sexually immoral, Harry. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are concerned about you. And for your sake and for the sake of the reputation of Christ, you, you need to move out. He said, no, it's fine. I'm not going to do that. We're love, blah, blah. You know what happens. Oh, we're in love. You know. And so things progressed. And the elders of the church, they came. They spoke with Harry. They said, Harry, you've got to change. Your friends have come before us. They said they've read Scripture with you. You know what Scripture says. You've been trained in this. You've been discipled in this. You know God has something better that he's calling you towards. And Harry said, no, I'm not going to do it. He said, Harry, if you will not repent of this sin, then I'm sorry, but you're going to have to leave. Harry got mad. He stormed out. You know, it's usually what happens. And He left. But even then, the door wasn't shut. You see these elders, that some of them knew Harry outside of church. They're friends with him, and they would touch base every once in a while. And it was probably a period of about six months. Harry wasn't anywhere to be seen. And then one Sunday for a Sunday morning service, Harry just came in. He sat in the back row. He was just there. He left. And the elders of the church, they saw, they recognized, and so they, they followed up. And over the next few months, they would touch base with Harry, say, hey, how you doing? How's your life? How's your walk with the Lord? He's still in this sin. He said, Harry, you know, you got to change. He goes, I know. And it was probably a year later. One Sunday, Harry said, can I speak with the elders of the church? So the elders and Harry, they got together, they talked, and Harry said, you're right. I was wrong. I was in sin. And I've moved out, and I've repented of my sin, 
And I would very much like to come back into the fellowship of this body. So the elders brought him before the church congregation. Harry confessed, and he explained the process he had been through. There's evidence of repentance in his life, and the church said, absolutely, you're welcome back, Harry. And they embraced him, and they broke bread and had communion together, and they praised the Lord together, and Harry was restored to the fellowship of this church. And in the months and the years that followed that, Harry continued to live faithfully to the Lord in that aspect, and even used his own example and his story of evidence and explanation as to why church discipline is a good thing, how it saved him and brought him back into a faithful road, and how we ought to care enough about one another to practice the things that Jesus taught us. Novel idea, right? But I love that story because it illustrates that when we're just faithful to Scripture, and not just to the words and to the practice, but to the heart behind it, where we genuinely care enough about one another to run this race together, we sharpen one another, and we grow one another, and we mature together in faithfulness and in impact and obedience and in love. And that's the kind of love and care that I would challenge all of us to be in cultivating in our lives today. We've heard it multiple times through different passages this morning and, and most other mornings. Sin is not a small thing. And if there's something in our hearts and in our lives that we are harboring and holding on to, that we refuse to let go of, take the words of Jesus seriously. Better to cut off your right hand or pluck out your right eye and lose them than to fall into hell with your body intact. Repent for your sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the ministry of Jesus. And hold each other accountable out of love and concern, not out of judgment, not out of condemnation. Not because there's an argument to win or you're very eager to point out the speck in your brother's eye when you got a log in your own. But out of genuine love and care for those that we run the race with together. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's build each other up in the Lord. And I promise if we actually just follow the words that Jesus left us, the Holy Spirit will dwell richly, not just in our lives, but in our fellowship. And the entire community of Monmouth around us will be blessed as God works through this body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And it's challenging sometimes to, to hear, to see how to apply in our lives, but it is rich and it is worth reading. And so we thank you for the challenge of church discipline. Let us repent in our own lives and let us embrace the grace that comes through Jesus, knowing that when we confess, you are there to meet us with your love and your concern and you are there to restore us. And let us embrace one another, not in judgment, but in concern and care and love. Build one another up, spur one another on, sharpen one another as we hold each other accountable and run this race together. We pray that we might do this to bring a lot of glory to Jesus' name because he is worth it. For all that he has done and all that he has yet to do, we praise his name. Amen. As we enter into a time of communion... I think it's appropriate it falls at this time in the service. We just talked about how we are in this race together. And we ought to care about one another. And the reason we're to care about each other so richly, again, goes back to something that Jesus said. John chapter 17. One of the last things we hear Jesus pray with any sort of extent or, or, or volume. He prays on the night he's betrayed. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples, Peter, James, John, the twelve. And then as the last thing he prays, I love it, he prays for you and me, those that will come after the disciples. And what he prays for us is not, I pray that they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
And what he prays for us is not, I hope that they're happy and satisfied and they don't have any problems in their life. What he prays is, let them be one, as we are one. I and you and you and me, talking to the Father. He prays for our unity. And part of unity is caring about one another. When we care about each other, when we form that kind of united community that spurs one another on, we answer the prayers of Jesus and we bring glory to his name. And if for no other reason than that, it is worthwhile to take this seriously. Because he deserves all of our praise and all of our obedience. Because he laid down all of his life and all of himself for you and me. That's what we celebrate at this time of communion. There are emblems that will come around, a cup of juice, a wafer of bread. They represent the body of Jesus that was broken for us, the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. And it's through that sacrifice that we were cleansed, that we were saved, that the grace of God washed over us and made us new and gave us hope and gave us life and gave us belonging and gave us a family and gave us an eternity. Is he not worth obedience and love of one another today? Absolutely. So as these emblems come around and we partake of them, I want to encourage you to do two things. One, praise Jesus for what he's done and how he has saved us. And two, pray for somebody sitting next to you. Pray for their faithfulness. Pray for their endurance. Pray for how the Holy Spirit will work in their life to build them up and enrich them in this faith. And if we can practice that, I think we might bring a smile to Jesus' face this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. And I thank you for the work he accomplished on that cross in saving us individually and in knitting us together communally. We are bound together by your blood and by your body. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God because of the grace that we share. And so we praise you for the salvation that we experience individually. And we pray for one another today. We pray for the faith of each other. We might be built up and strong in the Lord. We might be found faithful and obedient. We pray for each other's ministry and witness. That we might bring glory to Christ through the way we conduct ourselves. And it is our hope that our conduct individually and corporately will be an act of worship before you. And will make you proud. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.